Hi, I'm Indy, and welcome to Starry Indecisis. This year marks the 10-year anniversary of the landmark Silcoteen land title case, in which a unanimous Supreme Court of Canada recognized that the Silcoteen Nation has original title to over 1,750 square kilometers of land southwest of Williams Lake in the Namaya Valley. In law school, we've all studied the legal aspects of that case, but not the experience of what it was like for the individuals and the communities involved. Chief Roger William is chief of the Honeywitteen First Nation, which is one of six Silcoteen nations in a position that he served for several terms. Chief Roger was the original named plaintiff in the land title case, and the University of Northern British Columbia awarded him an honorary Doctor of Laws in 2015 in recognition of his vital contributions to that case. I had the chance to interview Chief Roger about Silcoteen Law, the 25-year story of the land title case, and his vision for his community's future. Here is that interview. So I thought that maybe where we could start would be that um, I'd love it if you could tell me a little bit about the Silcoteine Law and like how it's worked in the past and how it works today. Okay. That's a broad question. Sounds good. Um, before um, contact, uh, I called Chilcotin before contact, Eschaidan. Eschaidan is a Chilcotin person with no real influence or too much influence of European and, you know, our Tsilkotin people, uh, you know, they follow Tsilkotin law. Um, the way an elder explained what Tsilkotin law is, is like a, a trail. So there is this trail is for Tsilkotins. That's our trail. It's um, the trail for all of us. And if, you know, we may die on that trail, but that's our trail of our life. To the spiritual world and a creator is watching us and sort of um doesn't guide us but they pave the way based on how we follow our Tsilkotin law mm. so uh what the elder said is that this trail is for us so once we get off that trail because some trails are look better look nicer that means it's our own agenda mm-hmm. and once it's our own agenda then we're hurting people we're hurting our loved ones. We're hurting our community. We're hurting the, our old timers used to say, wildlife, fish and wildlife all spoke Chilcotin. So we're hurting our fish and wildlife. That's, that's who we are. That's what our old timers um, call that. So, um, and also it's like, if we knownly um, get off that, tra- that trail, then it's twice full. You know, we may make mistakes, uh, human nature, and we still get impacted. But if we intently do something, then it's more strong. The creator creates our path for us based on how we follow our Sikhotin law. So in our way, the old timers, the elders talk about the mother, the young mother, um, is when is having a baby, that's when the Sikhotin law starts the baby's inside the mother's womb. There's lots of rules around when you're pregnant with a little baby. Those those rules also um, are supported and helped by by the um, partner, the, the husband, and also the parents, the grandparents, the uncles, the aunts, the siblings. And it's like an excitement. The whole excitement of having a baby, it's like they all pitch in to make sure they teach this little baby to, to support, support this mom to follow that Tsilkotin law. 
And this whole Tzedkotin law journey is for seven days. That's seven days that um, a child has been prepared for since they're inside the mother's womb based on rules that the mother has to follow. And, you know, like like in any situation where you're a baby, you could be a babe, a young child, you could be a teenager, um, you know, as grown up, we lose loved ones. We lose people that are so close to us. There's rules about how we're conducted. If you're a baby, if you're a teenager, if you're a young adult or an elder, there's rules about how you conduct yourself or the family supports you around loved one being um, cremated or being celebration of life. So all that, the whole being of Chilcotin is for those seven days. And that seven days uh, is um, so important. They say how you are in a seven days, that seven days is when you become an adult. When you're, if you're a female, your first menstruation, your first seven days are most powerful. If you're a male, it's your man's voice when you're first getting it. And they're, they're taught and trained for that day. As soon as they get in that, they go out into the wilderness and they're on their own. There's no support. They've been trained for it. They may not make it. They may die. But that's the whole being of uh, being on a Tzilkotin law, that trail, being on that trail. So, but it's not like you just told yesterday and you got to follow this. You, it's been your whole life. Mm-hmm. You've been trained. You're you're born into this Tzilkotin law. Like when you're born, you're placenta. There's rules around what they do with the placenta. The, the naming ceremony, um, the child growing up, they'll they'll be following and learning from their parents and grandparents and their uncles and aunts and and if they're siblings, their older siblings, their relatives, and they would learn how to hunt, how to trap, how to gather food, um, berries, medicines, roots, and they learn all that. There's different ceremonies for that. And, you know, even sacred sites, there's ceremonies for different things, um, different celebrations. So that's what they're consumed in. That's what they live. And that's how they grow. And there's what's really powerful is the, in English, it's not, I don't know if it explains this, um, this world. Because I could bring you to a site in the Chilcotin that's um, turned into a stone. A person's name, that person turned into stone because of this, this, this. I can bring you to places in the Chilcote where that happened. And I guess um, for lack of a better word, a word name called legends. Legend stories are told, but to us, um, I don't even know if creation stories is the right word because it sounds like you're creating to me, um, when I was in court, I was testifying in court, the judge asked me, Chief Roger, you're talking about this history. Did it really happen? I'm trying to understand. I said, yes, it did. It's not um, made up. It really happened. We we live by those rules. And this history that we went through where an individual became a stone, you know, there's a... Uh, a legend, a, a history story about 
half human, half dog called and they had triplets. So in our culture, if you're twin, you're called Nimi. If you carried a dead body, you're called Nimi. If you're um if you lost a partner, you're Nimi. Nimi is a powerful word. It it just explains that you got this energy. Um it's not a bad thing, it's just like money. You got lots of money, that that money can get you in trouble, right? You misuse it. You might uh, owe somebody, then something happens to you. Same thing with Nimi. It's got so much power, and they teach you how to use Nimi. If you don't use it right, you're hurting babies. If you got Nimi, you can't, you can't pack little babies that are under a year old. Uh, you can't wrestle young people. You can't touch their hair. You can't press on them because their body will get sick and get weak and or they wouldn't be strong, or they'll be weak, or they get sick easy, things like that. So that's that nimi. But that nimi is also used to bring back the salmon, to bring back the berries, the medicine, to bring, you know, if there's a death happening in the family too many, they can use that nimi to to change that so that that family wouldn't lose any more people. So there's good things about nimi. But it's also like money. If you use money right, it can do a lot of good things for you and everybody. But if you use it wrong, it's probably going to get you and everyone else in trouble. So that's what need me. So these history stories about um, the, you know, about the raven, the coyote, about um, you know, the salmon boy, uh, um. You know, the ravens stole a fire, things like that. Those are all, they're not latent stories. They really happen. And that's how we know. That's how our land was created. That's why there's a river here. That's why there's a lake over here. Uh, that's why the animals got a necklace around their neck. Or um, that's why the animal still eats people. Things like that. There's lots of reasons why. And those are real happenings. So... That's what the young baby that's born into the to the law is learning from the their parents, grandparents, siblings, uncles, uh, relatives, and they follow and they learn about Nimi. They learn about this this history that how the shell coden came to be. How come there's this? How come what happened to that rock? Like there's stories about that. So that's that's part of their upbringing. And then, and they're getting trained to not eat, consume too much food, consume too much water, and they're trained to go always. They they can go without food and water, and and hike long ways and pack stuff long ways. That's all their life. And when they become an adult, they go out on their own. They know everything. They know how to how this world, this animal. They know which animals are dangerous, what you could do to deal with it. They know all those things and they go out for seven days. And they they um you know they, they gotta be taught to think positive, to think powerful, to think about their community, um, to think about the better because wildlife, fish and wildlife is we all spoke the same language, so they're taught that they knew we were all the same people. Cause in clean district they have human half dog. They talked about a tribe. They had a magpie. They had a raven. They had a dog. They had people. 
they had those in the same tribe. They were all considered the same the tribe. So that's that's what they know when they're out there. And they they um you'll see designs out there on the land, maybe rock fixtures or if they go hunting, if they shoot it, if they kill an animal, they gotta they have to replace it with something else. Um if they fish, same thing. So there's different rituals depending on what they want to do. And then for seven days they do that. The only time they drink water, they gotta drink it out of the palm of their hand or even the back. One just once. That's only if you really need the drink. And they got a maybe a, a dry fish or a dried meat or maybe some berries. They just when they're really hungry, they can't help it, they can take some. Not too much. So that they do that for seven days and then they get their power. Every Chalcodon person has an animal, bird, or fish power. And that's who they are for all their life. They dream about it. They sing about it. They learn a drum song about it. And that's who they are. And then there's another person, if you want to call it. We say DN. It's a spiritual medicine shaman power. That's a different process. There's a, there's a teaching on how you can get that power. And then there's the power when you become an adult, that power. So... So those are powers, and they say that um, they teach us if you're an adult, if you're a leader, if you're a hunter, if you're a warrior, that um, you have to be really careful how you use yourself. You don't take advantage of people. You treat everyone nicely. So the yens, the shaman power, they're really scared to hurt anyone with their power because they'll come back on they love their family. So what happens? The creator is watching them. If at the end uses their power for their own agenda, they might lose a, a grandchild. They may, might lose a horse or something like that. So they they love their their family. So they'll be so scared to not hurt anyone. So they, they always make sure that, um, and they teach everyone else around a shaman person, you can't scare them. If you scare them, their power might might um, get you and get you sick, and then you'll die. You need another medicine person to fix you. So, but then that's the only time if you scare them and their power go, goes after you, then there's no repercussions because every person's trained not to scare at the end, for example. So, if I was a child and I scared an adult, and that adult um, loses their spirit, and there was no medicine person to fix him. That adult dies, then I'm, I'm going to lose something. The creator will make me lose something that I love. Some person I love could be my dog, could be my horse, whatever. So that's sort of that's how I'm trained. And so that's sort of a quick uh, a quick look at um, Tzedkotin law. It's a way of life, and we all, no matter where you are in the Chilcotin, we've got six Chilcotin communities, no matter where you are in the Chilcotin, if a child um, is doing something different, any adult can tell a child, you remember this story, you remember this history, that child will know. And they say, oh, I better stop doing this. I'm going to quit doing that. So, That's yeah. Awesome. yeah, thank you so much for telling me all of that. It's really beautiful. Yes. Um, yeah. So I guess now I was 
hoping to turn a little bit towards the land title case because um, it was originally brought in your name um, in Roger Williams. Um, so I'm curious about like how how that case began, like how you got involved with it at the very beginning. Well, um, I know I'll just go back to European contact, the 1862 um, smallpox where we lost 80, 70, 100%, 20% of our people throughout our territory and how many very powerful, important people, leaders, medicine people died. And what was left at the... So that's in my DNA. I I feel those um, trust issues. I, I don't... Uh, you know, I'm... Never, I don't think our people ever really heal from that. So for generations, we've been kind of like, it's never been dealt with to lose, you know, catastrophically, almost everyone in your community died around you and you're the only survivor, for example. What is that? There's fear, anger, hurt. And then you're trying to survive after that. How do you survive? If you survive, um, you never like, what do you do? So um, I think about that. Then 1864, after the smallpox, two years later, the Tzilkotin War started. And that history in itself, it's a long history. And a smallpox was one of the reasons why the war broke out, was threatened against our people. But um, when you think about the smallpox to the Tzilkotin War, there was divisions happening already. Because Catholic came in early 1800s into our nation. And so some of our people were connecting with Catholic. Uh, and then when, when, when you hit the 1862 smallpox, maybe some communities only lost 10, 5% of their people. And they were able to do the cremation, the whole ceremony about celebration of life to them. Another community, maybe only two of them survived. There was no way they could have done it to cremate. So the Catholic came in and they started helping out, burying all these people. And these two people that survived were probably confused, but thankful that they got help. Their loved ones were buried, not their way. It's like a whole, it's just like, almost like end of the world. Like we're supposed to do cremation. We're supposed to have all these rules. We've got to go by. I've been taught since I was a baby, how do we do a celebration of life? This is totally different. But at the same time, I'm thankful that these people helped me out. So there's been intermarriages and division started. So they got the, I call it traditional people who stuck to their tra traditional ways that were able to cremate their celebration of life of their people from the smallpox. And there's a group that just couldn't, they needed help. And then there's this third group that has families on both sides that they love to go back and forth. So the, the big division started in 1862. Take out the noir after the war broke out. Uh, they took a lot of people out and the militia came out to try and get them, but they couldn't get them. The, the leader in the militia was killed by the Chilcotans. So um, the, the government uh got a hold of our Chilco and Chiefs and said, we want to do peace talks. So the Chiefs had runners to go to the Warriors. 
And there's a lot of story about that where some of the warriors like, I don't know. I don't trust that. You know, they want to do peace talks. They want to settle this situation. Some of the warriors that went to Ain, um, they were shackled, tried, and hung. And then now you got a family. So you got a three group of people, the traditional Tsekhotin, the new way Tsekhotin, and the third Tsekhotin who left both sides and go back and forth. And now you got the fourth one where the family of the warriors didn't trust the family of the chiefs because they thought the family of the chiefs, uh, the chiefs lied to the warriors and got them hung. So that, that whole mass confusion and the whole trust issue. So that's sort of, I'm part of that. I'm born into that. Uh, when I was growing up, my grandma used to tell me war stories and she'd tell me, be careful who you tell, you might get hung. Meaning that I might have an uncle over there or an elder over there. Don't tell them because he may give that information to get them and then the authorities going to come and get you and hang you. So that's that's how serious it got amongst us. So if you think about that and you add in um, Indian Act, this whole territory put into little reserves, and then we can't survive off the reserves, so they give us a little bit of money, sugar, whatever, food to keep us on reserve, and we needed permission to get off. So we, we got divided into six when we had you know, families and tribes of 10 and 20 throughout the whole cell code. Now we're divided into a smaller group, which was more than our usual. We used to go by, I heard stories that we always went by fives or 10 or 20, never more than that. And because nations around us are bigger, more populated. So if they attack one or two families, you might lose 20 people. The runners run and get the other warriors and they come back and 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 get those other nations who attacked us back. So that's how our defense system was. And us and when when you look at um from the Indian Act putting us on reserve into six different communities, which is more than ten ten to a tribe, twenty to a tribe, and now we're all kind of forced to sit together and then the, that history of all that four different groups of people that didn't trust each other are in one community, six different communities. And and then alcohol gets involved, residential school, we get, you know, even if there's no abuse, uh, imagine your little five-year-old baby taken away from you for 10 months out of a year, come back with a different attitude. That's just on the parent side, the grandparent side. And you only got two months out of a year to teach that child your way. But that child says, no, that's wrong, that's evil, like the Catholic, like the residential school teaching. So there's more division there again. And so, you know, think of all that. Um, we, my grandma didn't trust every Chilcotin, only family she trusted. And when she told me stories or us stories, she would always remind us, be careful who you tell. Be careful who what you say to others because you don't know they might be your enemy. They they speak Chilcotin, they they know your laws, 
but they may still tell on you because they thought the Chiefs did that to the Warriors. So that's the whole process. So when I was growing up, uh, there's a lot of things happened um, before my time. You know, we got into uh, ranching with cattle and horses, wild horses. I grew up around wild horses and cattle. My community is the most remote in the Chilcotin. Um, we never had BC hydropower. They almost flood this area. This whole valley in my valley would have been underwater if, if BC Hydro started here in our area. Putting Chelco Lake together with Tesico and Tatlioko Lake would have put Namaya underwater. So um, we didn't have a road built into our community until the early 70s. We never had an online phone system in our community till year 2000. So um, we're probably the most remote, the most an area that's still pretty much the same as it was back in 1864 and prior to 1864. We're still intact, still powerful, but we got families scattered out throughout the whole Chilcotin. Um, I'm related to people in Chilcotin through my father's side, my mom's side, my grandparents, same thing. So it's uh, the whole, I think of the Chilcotin War as holding us together. All the trust issues that that was created in the mission, in the, in the burials and the smallpox, um, in the Indian Act process, and but we all as every child was told about the Chilcotin War and what happened to us. So, based on that, um, it was always in the back of our mind. So for me, when I was going to when I I ended up in a residential school when I was six. I went for three years only, but before me was my siblings, my my cousins, my relatives, and I heard stories from them, what it was about. And so when I went through that, I kind of, although it was really hard, I, I had an understanding of what, what, what it was and what it did. You're not allowed to <clears throat> speak your language. You, you forget your culture. You're not allowed to practice your culture. There's rules against it. You're unreserved. So as I grew up, uh, I listened to other families, other elders while I'm going to school. Three years in residential school and our chief back in the day was able to bring the school back, get a school going in our community. So I was lucky from 10 years old until today. Um, I've been living here in Chilcotin and Hani all my life. So I'm really fortunate that way. And I know my language. I I went to school understanding about our history, my language, our culture, that's what in law I knew about, although I never myself personally went through the seven-day um, adulthood process, the ceremony, because my mom was in residential school as well. So all that started to change. So in, in the Chilcotin, um, there's six communities and logging, mining started happening. We're more remote. We almost were underwater. We had to move somewhere else. So we all, I grew up knowing all these stories from my uncles and aunts and my my grandparents and single mom. I have a single mom. And and then my relatives, We it's just like you kind of know what's going on because people talk about it. 
And so going to school out of here and listening and watching, um, I realized because I got siblings and cousins around me that talk about it too, that the government did this all, all this to us. That's why we're here. And then we hear stories about logging in, a, in an area where it impacted our people. So when I was in high school, grade 12, I was out uh, in the summer and school was out like, I was probably like grade 11 or 10 and I was at a general assembly and the ministry first came to our general assembly and told our people that uh, we're going to be doing logging in their area. And this is what we're going to do. Pretty much to me that the ministry of first person was saying, we're going to log it, whether you like it or not. Didn't even ask us for permission. They just said, we're going to do this. So that's when in my, in my heart, in my mind, confirm all the stories I've been hearing all my life about what government's doing to us, what companies been doing, the impacts, other relatives out there saying, oh, this place is clear cut now. I can't even recognize where we used to camp or hunt our medicines. Our ceremonial site is locked out. The mine is doing damage. So right from there, I, I already implanted with the attitude of this government at our General Assembly that, okay, I'm not going to let that happen. So that's sort of, uh, my my older brother ran for council, got in, and then I later ran for council and got in. And then when I got in council, our first woman chief, Annie C. William, we we got connected with people outside, like Woodward and Company, Cindy English. We started a Friends in the Maya Valley, and then we created this declaration and the Maya Valley, August 23, and the Maya Valley Aboriginal Preserve uh, um, was developed. One side is in English, the other side in Chilcotin, and we, we talked to our elders, and in there it talks about, in short, that we don't agree with clear-cut logging, we don't agree with mining, we don't agree with commercial road building, and we don't agree with flooding. So that was the declaration. It's like the Constitution of Hanigotin. So whoever chief and follow that. I was on council when, when Annie C. William was chief and our former chief, uh, Adam William, was on council. So we had a former council chief, former chief on council and a woman chief and then me as council working with our elders created this declaration and that was, that was our mandate after that. So in... The next term I ran for chief and I got in and that's my whole process is uh, trying to back up that declaration of August 23, 1989 that um, our people told us don't allow clear cuts, don't allow mining, don't allow commercial road building, don't allow any floods. So, And that, that was sort of what I seemed like um, all the stories since I was a baby to then and getting leadership and this declaration come into play from our people. So that was sort of my mandate after that. So when I got in the chief, that's working with Woodward and Company, working with Tsekhote National Government, um, you know, there was uh, like even in 1990, way back 20 years prior to 1990, in 1970, 
they set aside an area on the south end of Chelco Lake. It's an 80 kilometer lake and then a 60 kilometer lake in Tosico Lake, an area called Deferred Planet Area where they didn't allow any logging, but they allowed mining exploration. So they want to do a land use plan and they they seen our declarations so the government had to involve us because we did a press release in Vancouver with our elders. We brought our elders when Annie was chief to Vancouver and we did a big press release about the declaration, who we are, and then it became open to everyone who we are, Hanikutin from the Chilcote Nation. So when they want to do this land use plan, they had to involve us. So I be when I, we got involved, I became I'm I became co-chair with Ministry of Parks and Ministry of Mine, a three-year study. And out of that came the Tselos Park. Tselos is a legend mountain, a history of man that turned into a mountain. And there's a story about him and his wife in the youth. So we call it Tselos Parks, provincial BC parks, where we're, we are co-managers. So we make decisions on, and anyone that had business that uh, doesn't affect the parks were grandfathered in, like ranchers, tourism operators, guide and outfits, and Haniguitin, if we want to do business, that um, we we were already grandfathered in and we co-managed the parks. And then uh, prior to all that, or right after the 1990s, land use plan, Chelco land use plan started, then came the trap line, the company, the company that um, wants to log in a trap line we filed a trap. We we filed a um, trap line case in 1990, 1991, out of court settlement, and then the same company uh, in 1992 wanted to log in the Brittany Triangle between Chelco Lake to Seco Lakes where the rivers join, and the Maya Mountains. They wanted to harvest the beetle in impact wood, 1.8 million cubic meters of um, lodgepole pine. So that's sort of how all this started. Uh, we had a roadblock in 92, two-month roadblock. And then we did a land use plan with the logging company, BC. And we came out with the Brittany Lake Forest Mansion Plan, which will mimic the fire. We'll, it'll, if we lock, it'll, it, wouldn't be, it wouldn't be like squares. There'll be areas where we protect, like the... the um, the watershed will be protected. The sacred sites will be protected, and then we're going to do on. We're going to create a bridge on the river, and we're going to man the bridge so that hunters can come in, people can come in and go on the road, but they can't bring a gun. So that's all that that we were. If there's going to be any log in the Brittany Triangle in the Brittany Lake Forest Management Plan, that was the plan. We're going to change the face of logging. There'll be a five-year plan. One point. 8 million cubic meters down to 1.1 million cubic meters. So, and in a day, our people turn it down. Five different votes. So in 97, uh, Ministry of Force was frustrated. They said, well, in 1998, we're going to lock the Brittany Triangle under the Brittany Force Mansion plan, whether you like it or not, they told us. And then they were going to build a road into our trap line from uh, the north end of our trap line, and we had another roadblock. And then we came to agreement on doing a 
for Burr study. So that's when the court case started clicking in. We opened up the trap line case again. And 1998, December, we filed a, the Brittany Lake first match and plant, the Brittany Lake area, Pajalachet, and the Hanikutin trap line put it together and filed a title case in my name. And we've been communicating with TNG, TNG, Tekotin communities, roadblock with us, and non First Nations that agreed with us, roadblock with us back in 92. So there's a lot of meetings, a lot of communications, a lot of gatherings about it. So, yeah, it's been, uh, there's so much to talk about. <laughs> what was that experience like? Like in law school, I think we hear so much about like the law and not enough about what it's like for the people going through that process. Like what was the experience of of, uh, of having the elders testify in court? What was that like? You know, we had former leaders. Um, I remember my uncle was a former chief. And what what they said is we never lost a land. It's always been ours. You know, I don't know why we got to go to court to prove we got title. It should be BC and Canada going to court to prove they got title in Ireland. But at the same time, they said, well, you know, this is a good time to tell BC and Canada whose land it is. So through the lawyers, Woodward and Company, we knew that we had the proof we have. We've been in this land prior to 1846 to prove Aboriginal title. That we that we govern, that we had a, a loss to the area, and that we protected that boundary. So that's something that um, our elders said. Well, we we know what happened. If you tell the truth, you don't need to worry about questions that um, you'd be cross in the in cross examination, because all you're doing is telling the truth. So they can ask you any question, BC in Canada in cross-examination. You just tell the truth. You don't need to remember anything. It's just the truth. So that's what the elders, the leaders were saying. So we, along with the Chilcote Nation, their elders, other community elders and our elders and leaders um, got prepared for. We didn't have no money. TNG had no money. Other communities had no money. So we went after court case costs. And so when we filed in 1998, December to 2002, there was a lot of hearings where BC and Canada said, well, um, these are the wrong people. Uh, they can't go to court. They don't have rights and title. And there's a BC treaty process they could go to why do they need to go to court? That was BC and Canada lawyers arguing us, our lawyers. So we won all those arguments that um, we were awarded to go ahead with the title, the, the title case. But we had no money, so we went after court case costs. So there's a group called Friends in the Maya Valley. They, did, they were um, housed in Victoria. And they work with us, and we fundraise. We did uh, a wild horse documentary as a documentary as a backup. We knew people love horses, and if we can protect wild horses, then we're going to protect our moose and deer, right? So we did a documentary on wild horses to fundraise, and then we used that funding 
to also go after BC and Canada because they want to lock in, in our area, in our trap line, in the Brittany Lake, Brittany Lake area, the triangle area. So they should pay for the court. And we won that case. So that's how the five-year trial started. And then we started filing elders from each of the Shakotan communities. And I think it was like 15, 15 elders and leaders from Hani and then 11 elders and leaders from the Chilcotin that testified in court. Then we had expert witnesses about, I think it was like 22 expert witnesses, five-year trial. And then 2007, November 21, the trial decision came down. And then there was a process where after the decision came down, the, we proved title, we proved rights. So they, the judge encouraged us to negotiate. So we tried to sit down with BC and Canada in 2008. Canada didn't want to negotiate, but they agreed to chair our meetings, our negotiations meetings. And we knew how the BC treaty process is going. So we did two part. We said the first part will be we'll negotiate for land and and management and some funding. So if that's successful, then we'll we'll sit down and negotiate Aboriginal rights and title to the Chilcotin. So we got nowhere. We didn't. We didn't, we just kind of things didn't turn out. So we we filed a, a appeal Supreme Court of to Supreme Court of BC in 2009, we filed it. And in 2010, the hearing, three day hearing, six days hearing in 2010, November. Uh, and then decision came down in 2012 in June. And our rights, so when a trial decision came down, we proved title to almost 50% of the court case area. We proved we proved declaration of rights to hundred percent of the area to hunt, to to trap, to trade, and also to catch and use wild horses. So in two thousand eight, we didn't get nowhere. We went to Supreme Court of BC, and in terms of declaration of rights, we won that again. But in title, the the three judges ruled that um, we may have small uh, spot small spot claim or what would you call it? Uh, uh, maybe where we hunted off a rock or behind a rock blind or stood off a rock to go fishing, we might have title. So postage stamp style title. And we had to go back to Supreme Court of, B Supreme Court of BC to go back to court to prove the small spot title. The uh, postage damage style title, we we didn't agree with that, so we, we filed to the Supreme Court of Canada. So in by September, in a September, we filed it a title case to the Supreme Court of Canada, and BC and Canada didn't appeal um, the rights decision. So September thirtieth, two thousand twelve, the declarations of rights to hunt to trap to trade and also the catch and use while horse became the law. So what's the difference? Uh, well, we all got rights to hunt and fish in our territory 
But then BC says, well, we don't know if it's shoe swap, carrier, or other First Nations that got rights. Here's a declaration of rights that's exclusive to Chilcotin. So that means if they're going to go into the declaration of rights area, if they're going to lock our mind, they got to prove to us that they're not going to affect our, our Aboriginal rights. To do that, they need to know, you know, what species do we hunt, do we live off of? What about the medicines, the berries? They got to find that out. And the habitats of those species, the the health of those, um, I guess, the roots and, and the berries, what is the health of those? So whatever activity you're doing, if you're going to affect that, you can't lock, you can't mine, or you have to replace it. You have to compensate. So that's a difference in terms of declaration of rights. So since 2012 to today, in the rights area, there's been no logging, no mining, no plans to it, because they know we'll take them to court. And they had this, and we gave, we opened the door to them saying, well, if you want to try and do that, you need to prove to us, you need to know from us what kind of species that we live off of. What about the habitats of those species? What is the health of those medicines and berries? So you gotta you gotta do all that. We can do that study for you. You gotta give us money, we'll do it for you and we'll put the plan in front of you. But they chose not to, so but they didn't lock or mine. So so in January two thousand thirteen our Supreme Supreme Court of Canada agreed to hear our to hear our case in the appeal. So November November seven two thousand or, or January, I think it was January two thousand thirteen, we got the rights to go Supreme Court of Canada, and November seventh two thousand thirteen was the hearing. So that's when uh, we First Nations across Canada the. Local non-First Nations here got together and got a lawyer and agreed to, you know, intervene, saying that we have title. So it was really a powerful moment. We brought all uh, elders and leaders that testified in court, 26 of them, uh, on a express express ride with a, a bus. And we did a trip across Canada, stopping in each province, meeting First Nations and um, exchanging gifts and getting support. So we had a lot of First Nations in Ottawa uh, on the 7th of November 2013, and we had lawyers from all the different uh, 630 First Nations across Canada, either their nation or their maybe their their province, might have they hired their own lawyer to intervene with us. So it was a really special moment or all the elders who testified were there in Ottawa in Supreme Court of Canada listening to the arguments. So that was really powerful. And then as you know, uh year almost um a year later, would it be? Two thousand November two thousand thirteen, almost a year, not not quite June two thousand fourteen is when we won. So yeah. That's an incredibly inspiring story. How has your community changed as a result of going through that process? And what's your like hope or your vision for your community moving forward? Like, what are your plans? Our community is um, 
I think they their expectations are high. They're they know what we've been through prior to the court case. They know what would have been out here if we didn't go to court, if we didn't roadblock. So I think um our community is amazingly patient here in Honey. Um, they may have a little bit of issues of taking too long, but I think um, on title land, we're doing land use plans. We've been interviewing our families. We, we've been having title transition team meetings every month that uh, other Chilcone communities can be involved. And we're meeting with um, tenure holders in our area. So we call them islands. Uh, when we filed to Supreme Court of Canada, we remove reserve lands from the court case. And we remove um, private lands from the from the court case to go to Supreme Court of Canada. And so when we won, there's still reserve lands and title land, and there's still private lands and title land. But they... Some of them are um, residents only. Some of them are, you know, hunted guide outfits. Some of them are tourism operators. Some of them have cattle. Some of them are trappers. So now they need permission from us to use a piece of land that they've been uh, approved by BC. They've been they've been given tenures by BC and they pay BC. So we agreed to sign an agreement with BC, they, we call it a bridging agreement for the interim, and BC collect money, and we allow all the tenure holders to use, to continue with their tenures on our title land. So slowly we've been taking that over, and slowly we've been changing some of the tenures where it affects sacred sites, maybe it affects our cultural sites, and then we remove those areas from their tenures. And slowly, um, we're going to be fully in control of that. And we're looking at um, eight different pillars where, as a nation, we're negotiating with um, BC and Canada. So in 2016, uh, in, in February the 11th, we signed what we call the... Um, agreement with BC, a five-year deal. And then in 2019, we signed an agreement with Canada called Pathways and a, a five-year deal, which BC joined. So so now we're looking at going to be 10 years coming up in June this year. It'll be a 10-year anniversary. So we're looking at a 10-year agreement with BC and Canada. So we're looking at uh, housing as a priority, language, culture, bringing that back into our young families. Um, we're looking at uh, health. So in health, we're, we are trying to use more of our ways to live more healthier lifestyle. And, and also um social social well-being education is uh one of our pillars and in education we want to filter our our information into education so that not only our kids but all kids should learn about 
Chilcot and who we are as Indigenous people. And so um, there's a lot of little things trying to happen. We've got wild horses we're working on, managing wild horses. Um, we have a solar panel here in Honey. We're looking at um, a mini hydro to create power. We do have a solar system with a generator and a battery running in our community. So there's uh, lots of little things, and mainly we want to focus on housing because that's we're really shortage. We we got to renovate. We got to build new homes, and bringing back Tishkotin Law is another and language is another important process where we got elders who know. We got members who hunt and fish, knowledge keepers that we could pay them to teach our young ones, to teach young families to teach in the schools and the universities about who we are. And, and that's our economy is the, the moose, the deer, the salmon, the fish, the berries, the roots, the medicines. And we want to keep all that moving forward and look at an economy that, um, you know, that's more sustainable. Mm-hmm. You know, right now we see what logging does. We see what uh, mining does, and we want to look at different ways of um, creating opportunities. But number one is um, as long as our people can use the land to get their food and their medicines, their berries, that's a priority right now. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like you have really exciting things on the horizon. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for, for your time, Chief Roger. I really appreciate it. I think that the listeners are going to love love hearing your story. All right. You're welcome. And thank you. Thank you.